0: Welcome to the Script PhD Podcast, where we shine a spotlight on science and technology in entertainment and media. I'm ScriptPhD.com founder Jovana Grbic. Join me for smart, thought-provoking discussions with the brilliant scientists and creative visionaries finding unity between the analytical and the artistic. PhD.com is pleased to be joined by Dr. Brian Cox, Professor of Particle Physics in the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Manchester and host of the BBC and Science Channel series, Wonders of the Solar System. Brian, your immense enthusiasm for this material shines through, not just in this series, but in all your science communication. Despite the fact that this is your lifelong profession, I suppose one could get a little bit complacent or even serious about it. But in presenting the content of this series, it borders on awe at times from your perspective. What allows you to remain so excited about space and the solar system?
1: Even if you're a professional, and of course, I know you've got a PhD as well, you know, writing a thesis is astonishingly difficult, and it's easy to become jaded because, uh, you know, science is a, a, a complex and difficult thing to do in a professional profession through the sense of the word. But I think as long as you remember the thing that captured your imagination initially, and you remember what it was like as a kid, you know, looking up at the stars and so sort in of wonder, and what are those things, and what is up there? I think you, 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 can, you can go back, you can rewind. And it actually helps making TV shows and writing books and popularizing science, because it forces you to remember what it was that got you interested and involved in the service.
0: The Mars Rover and the Cassini Orbit project, which I have to credit to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, both are JPL projects. They're mentioned in the series in the first couple of episodes. And yet, even as these amazing projects bring us new information about our solar system, America is cutting or tightening the NASA budget. It seems like new launches and missions seem unlikely in the near future. Do you feel that this is a mistake, and why?
1: It is a mistake uh, for our civilization to stop exploring. There's always been, you look back in history, there's always been pressure from politicians or the the public, whoever it may be, to to say, well, we know enough now. It's always felt, at every point in the past, you can look back and it seems, you know, we know enough, we should just take what we have and, and develop that. And it's always been exactly the wrong thing to do. I mean, there's a, a famous quote um, by uh, Alexander Fleming, right. and he said, in fact, it was in the 1920s when he discovered penicillin. He said, You know, when I woke up this morning, I didn't expect to revolutionize modern medicine you know, by discovering penicillin. And you look, the day before, I guarantee, if you'd have said to a government, You know, should we fund basic medical research, they would have said, No, we know enough. We can do some operations and we can cure most things. And then the day later, someone discovers penicillin. It's always the same with with exploration, scientific exploration or physical exploration. It feels like it's a luxury. But actually it's genuinely a necessity and history teaches you that. I know it's difficult when in in difficult economic times, it's the same in the UK, you know, when you're trying to balance your priorities. It looks like another mission to explore Mars for life on the surface of another planet is something that you could perhaps do in ten years' time. Actually you can't, because what what happens is you you lose the and you lose your, your PhD students and your postdocs and your, and your field kids, actually. If you, if you have a gap where you don't do anything pioneering and interesting for 10 years because you think you've just got to kind of retrench a little bit, then you lose a generation of explorers and scientists and engineers. And that's actually an incalculable loss. So it is, in that sense, a, a terrible mistake to postpone exploration.
0: And yet, at the same time, organizations such as the Prize here in California are launching what people call New Space, which is the idea of privatizing space for regular folks to explore and go up there with non-commissioned flights and not just astronauts. How do you feel about that, and do you feel any good can come out of it?
1: I think it's wonderful. I think that clearly, if you look back to the history of aviation, I mean, it, it progresses when it becomes commercial. You, you need uh, that initial R&D investment. So in in this case, getting people into low Earth orbit or you know, essentially Earth orbit near Earth space, so that that was done in, by America and Russia in, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So I do. Once it becomes relatively easy, then then it's it, it's a very good idea to get the private sector involved and they can do it. And I think actually getting people into into lower near Earth orbit is in these terms, relatively easy. I mean, I, I would prefer to see the US now doing something that isn't easy, like going to Mars. Right? I mean, if you look back to the 60s, going to the moon was actually beyond our capabilities as a civilization, I would say. It's one of the points when we overreach, and that's when we're at our best, and that's when we do the great things. That was one of the last great things we did in many respects, I think. Um, so I would like, I, I'm very comfortable with. with People like you know, Virgin Galactic, whoever it is, are putting people into low-Earth orbit and, and selling that. So, I mean, That's the way, the way to make it cheaper and affordable and safe, actually. But NASA should go to Mars, because that's hard.
0: Dovetailing on what you just mentioned regarding Mars, we have found water and or evidence of water potential on our Moon, on Mars, perhaps more places to be determined in the near future. Hypothetically speaking... What would human colonization of either planet have to entail?
1: Of the moon, of Mars? I mean, that's difficult. You're right that you need to get, you need a source of water on the planet, really. Otherwise, it's very difficult. I mean, there are, you know, some of the plan, land missions from Mars plans have called for the supplies to be sent first into orbit, so you can, you can deliver enough stuff to be there for months, let's say. You're right, you need to use the resources of the Planet if you're going to stay there for any length of time. I mean, I do think that's a long way in the future. But it's very, very difficult to build a permanent base. Probably not as difficult on the moon. I mean, we've done it with the space station. You know, so the space station is, is there, and it's a permanent human base in space, and it works. So, so you know, the moon isn't that much further away. But Mars is incredibly difficult, I think. And it would be one of the great achievements to get there, which is why I think we should do it
0: okay, let's go to Mars. I'm all for it. One of the most glorious aspects of this series, in my opinion, is its ability to convey vastness. It really gives you an idea of how immense and precise our solar system is. Given all of this, do you conjecture that in that endless sea of matter, there may be a possibility that there may be life somewhere other than Earth?
1: Yes, it's a simple answer. It's, it's, for me, the message program to make which is the fifth program in the series it's called Aliens, and it's about life. Right. And it's uh, focused on, um, well, really focused on Europa, but also Mars. So Europa is the, the moon of Jupiter that mm-hmm. has an ocean, probably 100 kilometers deep, surrounding the entire moon, which means there's more water on Europa than there, there is in all of the Earth's oceans put together, we think. And what you find on Earth is anywhere you find liquid water, then you find life. So no water, no life. And we, in this series, we go to the Atacama Desert, which is one of the driest places on Earth. And there are places there where there's nothing at all. It's more sterile than an operating theatre. But anywhere else you go, there, there's water, there's life. I mean, we went to a, a cave in Mexico where there are these life forms which are called schnotites <laughs> because they look like schnots in your nose. And they, they, they hang off the roof. But they metabolize hydrogen sulfide. And they're, they're a respiratory process hydrogen sulfide plus oxygen goes to sulfuric acid. And they drip concentrated sulfuric acid, which is the pH of battery acid, off onto the ground. It's an incredibly hostile place. But it's interesting because you find that anywhere you get an electron donor receptor, you get some battery. You get a chemical reaction where you can move electrons to create electricity. Anywhere you get that plus water, you get life on Earth. And we know there's water on Europa. Uh, we suspect there's water on some of of the other Jesus' means, um, on subsurface. There's probably subsurface water on Mars. So uh, I came away from that thinking that because on Earth you get life everywhere, I didn't see any reason why you shouldn't have life anywhere else that there's water. And that was confirmed, actually, by pretty much every astrobiologist I spoke to. Which actually makes it, I think, one of the great imperative of our time to go and find it, I mean, because of the great, you know, the, the great existential questions that existed throughout history. But are we alone is something that we could answer now, right? We, we well, unless we are alone, in which case we'll never answer it. But, but the, you know, the likelihood is that we could, with an appropriate mission, I think many people would say, quite reasonably, we could go to Mars and we may well, we have a good chance of finding life there with, with the right mission. We know how to do it. So it seems ridiculous to me that we don't answer that as a matter of urgency. One of the greatest questions you could possibly ask.
0: You have spoken at length about the 60s and 70s and how inspired you were by that space race. And in the series, you also talk about how as a little boy, you wrote a letter to Pasadena to get some cool pictures of space, which I thought was just adorable. If I may ask, what was it that sparked your interest in space? What was that "it" moment for you?
1: You know, I don't remember because, it, I, as far back as I can remember, it, it's it been there. And I, there was certainly kind of a confusion of things. That I liked astronomy, I liked science fiction as well, and I liked—I loved the moon landings and everything about it. But I did watch the moon landing apparently. I, I was born in '68, and I watched it with my dad. Um, so it I, maybe there's some little residual memory of that, you know, when I was one. And I can tell the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars and Apollo and Astronomy, you know, because you don't, you're seven years old and you just, it's all space to, to, for you, for me, right? It was all space. So I, I just don't know. That's the thing you see, I, I think, about, we went back to the original question you asked about how being a scientist, how it sounds, it can sound quite enough. Sphere, I suppose that word existence, you know, it's almost like monastic and taking the wonder out maybe because you're investigating it. But I think it's completely the opposite to that. I think the point is that you, for some reason, get notice the universe as a beautiful place and decide that you want to explain it and and understand it as best you can. I think that's actually the definition of what science is.
0: We thank Dr. Brian Cox for taking the time to join us on our podcast. Watch Wonders of the Solar System on the Science Channel, or find back episodes and DVDs of the series on sciencechannel.com. You can follow Dr. Cox on Twitter at Prof. Brian Cox. You have been listening to the Script PhD Podcast. I'm Jovan Grubitsch. Our theme music was composed by Dave Mendez. For more conversations with groundbreaking innovators at the Interface of Science and Popular Culture, subscribe to our podcast channel on iTunes and SoundCloud. Or find a full archive on our blog, scriptphd.com, by selecting the podcast category. See you guys next time.